Good morning. I'm back. <laughs> Remember me? <laughs> I was down in North Carolina for, I guess, almost the last three weeks. And uh, there's a new center going down there. It's going quite well. A lot of very interested people. And uh, really a delightful time. Uh, I would invite you down, but we don't have a, they don't have a guest house down there yet. So that'll have to come. But they're going to be coming up here. I invited all I invited all of them to come. So wonderful. Well, this morning, uh, you know, there's always about a several week lag between the time that I give a title and the time that I actually put the talk together, and it's always a mystery to me what I was thinking when I came up with the title. So, objective faith is where we're going to jump in this morning, and I and I thought I would take a different tack. Normally I'm very careful about uh, offending the intellectuals or uh, the general populace and the mood of the <laughs> society these days. But today we're going off the deep end. We're going to be uh, talking about walking on water and moving mountains and uh, all other sorts of impossible and childish things to believe and, uh, and put them forward as, uh, in a very inspiring way, like they were meant, and to go into a place that... Uh, I hope is challenging and hope will will take us to a more beautiful place and to a, to a higher place in our minds and our lives and just in our being alive. So to do that, I want to start again with a poem from Hafiz called The Theater of Freedom. In my divine studio, what I have been working on is this, painting the truth, revealing a more realistic picture of God tearing down the cruel walls that separate you from the tenderness of fire. Someone must be withholding the crucial lines in all these stories you have heard of our friend, for there is still too much fear and pallor upon your cheeks, and I rarely see you in that marvelous theater of freedom. Hafiz knows you could not describe him even if we sat by side by side on a caravan for years. Even if we slept close in my desert tent and you became familiar with the holy scent that the sun and my master leave whenever they visit me. For something has happened to your youthful passions. That great fuel you once had to defend yourself against becoming tamed. And your eyes now often tell me that your once vital talent to extract joy from the air has fallen into a deep sleep. All that you could ever say of me can only describe my camel's tail and the coarse hair that is barely visible sometimes on the left side of the moon's nose in my divine studio where I am sitting right now, crafting your heart, your lyre, and your flute. I long for the day when you will join me in knowing the extraordinary humor and all the enchanting realities of the infinite performances of God. The lecture starts off this morning, uh, actually reminding you of the three most important things. I, I always go back and forth. I always think that eventually that's going to get too old, but uh, really that's the point, I guess, that those lessons become old and true. But that first lesson in ours this morning, that if we, whatever the lectures are on and whatever they're about, 
uh, they're always meant to inspire uh, earnest, earnestness and sincerity in our quest for the divine, that we're sincere people, people who are true to our aspirations, who are attempting to be true to our ideals, men and women of integrity uh, as we approach our spiritual lives, um, that we're men of experience, women of experience, that our, our religion indeed is realization and not just a wishful speculation, but an active engagement, an active working toward a higher ideal for all of us. The second part is, is from Jesus when he says, what is the most important commandment of all? And he says to love the Lord your God, to love God, to love that divinity, to love love itself, to love the idea of selflessness, compassion, all those things that are the divine to have a commitment to that love in the way that we live, in the way that we talk about one another, in the way that we think about one another, and in the way that we act with one another. To have that as our highest ideal. And then the third is from Thakur again, Ramakrishna, when he was throwing out the opposites of this world, trying not to get caught in the bouncing back and forth from one side to the other. And he realized that truth was something you can't throw away that a commitment to truth is fundamental to our spiritual goals, our spiritual lives. And that that's a truth that doesn't start outside, it's a truth that starts inside. A truth so that what you think and what you say and what you do are in alignment, that they're the same, that there's no hypocrisy there, that there's no intention of deceit or image or love of name or fame or manipulations of lust and greed, that all those things are out of the way so that you can be straightforward you can be pure and you can be free in the way that you speak. Those are the most important things for our spiritual life. Those are the things that we should always be working on. And this morning we're going to throw some chili peppers on there. I'm going to go to, to I, I decided to go look at the couple of stories about walking on water, since I thought that would be a good demonstration of faith and uh, a pretty high ideal, I suppose. Um, um, yeah, unless you've got ice skates on. But um, the story starts in a rather dark place this morning. We're going to the book of Matthew, who is one of the direct disciples of Jesus, and he wrote about his life. And he's writing about this particular instance, and it starts with some rather dark news uh, for Jesus. So uh, it says, on Herod's birthday, who was the king of the region, on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. <laughs> Lovely woman. <laughs> Even a better mom. <laughs> the king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. Now, John the Baptist was the one who announced Jesus' coming. Uh, he was the one that baptized Jesus, and uh, he was actually a family member of Jesus. Uh, his, I think, Mary and, and John the Baptist's mother, I think, were cousins. I think that's their relationship. So it was family. So Jesus is now being told about the death of someone very close to him, someone who was part of his spiritual walk, someone who was there kind of from the beginning in his ministry, and he's just been beheaded. 
at a party nonetheless. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. This was the first thing that, that touched me, actually, and it took me back to that famous story I tell about the shrine. You know, go to the shrine if you're lonely. I was touched by the fact that when Jesus gets hit with, the, with, with this news, you know, with this something this sad, something this hard to take, that his first response wasn't to call up, you know, his disciples or to, you know, run to his family or even to run to John the Baptist's family. His first response was, was his beloved, the divine, and he withdraws to a solitary place to pray. We see that he also did that the night before his crucifixion when he knew what was coming. That Jesus knew that God was a refuge, was, was a real place to go to find your strength, to find your, to find your inner compass, to touch the ground again and to know where things are, what's up and what's down. And to know and to be reassured that this world is, in fact, couched in love. That it is, in fact, held in a beautiful place. And to remind yourself of that by going face to face with your beloved, with your divine, and pouring out what must have been a horrible pain for him. So to have faith in God, to have, to have an objective faith, and faith with an objective, is, is to have a God that is real. A relationship with that divinity that's tested and tried. At the beginning, certainly in the world today, it's mocked and it's made fun of because it takes investment. And if you don't make the investment, God is not there. It seems like a thought. It seems like wishful thinking. It's only through purity of mind and purity of heart and dedication of spirit and a real dedication to practice and to doing the work that it takes to clarify the mind that God becomes real, that God becomes a palpable existence that God becomes this, this force that, that has a very real meeting in your life, a real, a real actualization in giving you strength and giving you courage and giving you power and letting you rise up, really, to do the impossible, to think of the impossible, and to be bold in front of it. So the first act is to find God as that refuge. For all the things, all the reasons that you think yourselves unworthy or all the reasons that you are tired this morning, all the reasons that you're just worn out, that your life has become mundane, that you've accepted one thing after another. For all of those reasons, God is the perfect refuge to remind you of being a child, to remind you of the starry-eyed wonder of being alive, of walking in this world, of enjoying a life in the presence of the divine, to remind you of that innocence, that sweetness, that, that, that spontaneous purity that's in the eyes of a child to remind you that that's your nature, to remind you that that's not once you were, that that is what you are, and to come back to that place. So Jesus, hearing what happened, he withdrew us by a boat to a private place, a solitary place, to pray. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the town. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So he's gotten this horrible news, and he's just wanting to go be alone, go find some strength. His life is about service. He's always filled, just surrounded with crowds of people. And he gets on a boat to get away from everybody, to get away, to find a quiet place. And the crowd finds out about it. The rumor gets around, and by the time the boat gets to the other side of the lake, they're all there, thousands of them. There's literally thousands of them waiting for him. He doesn't turn the boat around <laughs> and head off for, 
for plan B. You know, he doesn't doesn't develop a bad attitude like, good God, will you guys go away? Like, leave me alone. Look, you know, <laughs> my, my cousin is dead. His head was just served on a platter to a woman at a party, at a dinner party at the king's house. There's none of that going on for him. He immediately has compassion, immediately has compassion on the crowd. So he, he gets off the boat and he goes out and he begins healing their sick and teaching them, you know, the words of the truth that he had realized, the God that he was going to go and spend some time alone with, that now he was going to serve with instead. And as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting quite late. You should send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. So his disciples, of course, are concerned, what, about both the people and, and Jesus, you know, wanting to get him his time alone, wanting to give him that space, and knowing that they couldn't do it for his sake, he, they couch it, do it for their sake, let them go get some food. But Jesus says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We here have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. <laughs> I read that and I thought about that for a minute. And I was like, that's almost always our response to go do something, you know. Even in, even in meetings, when, <laughs> like, you know, when you're talking about what should we do? Is, uh, should we build a new center? Should we expand? Should we do this or that or the other? Anytime an idea comes up, whether it's visionary or not, there's always that group of people in the room that are ready with their list of reasons why this can't be done. You know, oh, that's too expensive. Oh, no, we'd need too many permits for that or whatever. They're always, always the naysayers. And in our lives, too, you know, when we're, when we're presented with a good challenge, when we, you know, when I thought about raising my, <laughs> adding, you know, some piddly small amount of time to my meditation in the morning, you know, instantly the mind is there with all the reasons why that isn't necessary or isn't going to work or how I've tried that before and you'll just come back to the standard anyway. Just leave it like that. Faith is not listening to those things because here Jesus is saying to them, he's saying, you give them something to eat. He's raising their mind a little bit. He's saying, wait a minute, what do you mean send them away? These people are here for, to, to hear of God, to hear of love, to see love, to experience love. You can't send them away to fend for themselves. You, you give them something to eat. You take care of them. We don't, what are we going to do? You know, there's 10 of us, maybe 12 of us at that time. There's 10 of us sitting here. We've only got five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus says, well, bring them here to me. All right, bring them here to me. That's always the answer. When you're sitting there in doubt, when you've got a list of reasons on why you can't succeed or why you can't do what's necessary or you can't rise up or you can't beat your own your own weaknesses, you can't overcome your own character flaws. What do you do? You take them to the divine. That's Jesus' instruction. He says, okay, bring them here. Come here. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he gave thanks, and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and then the disciples went and gave them to the people. They all ate. They were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 5,000 men in addition to the women and children. So on a conservative note, you could say there was close to 8,000 people there. That's, that's bigger than Durga Puja. <laughs> 8,000 people, and he had, what, five loaves of bread and two fish, and he just keeps breaking them. There's many stories in the scriptures like that. You know, I've heard of one with somebody gave somebody a bucket of milk 
you know, and she just kept ladling out milk. It was an endless bucket of milk from the Lord. You know, we hear this story again and again and again. And actually in the scriptures, we don't talk about it much, or I don't talk about it much, mostly because you do get kind of embarrassed about that kind of stuff nowadays. You know, we don't want to be, we don't want to be, uh, uh, you know, gullible, uh, religious, you know, idiots, as it were. It's like there's a certain sensitivity toward believing things that are impossible these days. How can that be? You know, which is very odd because science itself is facing these walls of impossibility, you know, going into realms that, that can't be tested in laboratories anymore. You know, discovering things that where there's, they can put a particle in two contradictory states at the same time, call it both moving and not moving simultaneously. That's acceptable. We can put that in the New York Times. But, you know, these stories of walking on water or feeding 10,000 people, they've got to be metaphor. Those are only metaphors. They're not metaphors. These things happened. Dare to believe it. Have some fun with it. And understand the implications of it in your life. Have some fun thinking about what it means. That this world isn't a complete lack of the fairy tales you were hoping for when you were a kid. You know, that, uh, you know, Harry Potter, that how everybody <laughs> wished... Gosh, I was I was thirty something when they came out, and I still wanted to be Harry Potter. I was like, that would be cool. I want to live in a world like that, you know, with magic and mystery and fun and and that. And that is what faith opens up to us. That's what faith promises for the people who are ridiculous enough to believe it, who are crazy enough to take a chance on it, who are courageous enough to step off the edge and see if it works. You know, in a test of God's promise, the test of the that, that divinity. So after he's fed these 5,000 people, sent them away, he now actually gets some time alone. He says, immediately Jesus makes the disciples get into a boat and to go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later in the night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So Jesus did get that time with God. It's also important to notice. He didn't just let the crowds distract him and then not get, get back to his practice, not, not get to what he needed to do. You know, I've, if I had just fed 5,000 people with two pieces of fish and five loaves, I might think that was a good day's work. <laughs> I think I can go take some rest now and go lay down. But he doesn't. He goes, he does his time, sits his time in time with, with, with God to pray and to get that inner strength back. To, 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 to fill himself up with the remembrance of that divinity and to enjoy that company. So he sent the disciples away. They're out on the water. The wind, it's quite stormy out there. The winds are against the boat, so it hasn't gone that far, but it is out considerably from the shore. And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's me, don't be afraid. <laughs> so, all right, he's walking on water. We're going to read a second story about someone else in the, in the scriptures that also walks on water that, that Takor tells about when he quotes the scripture. But here we're going to be with Jesus for a minute. So Jesus, you know, is left with a way of getting out to the boat. For someone whose relationship with God is, is everything, for someone who knows that this world is the play of the divine, for someone who, <laughs> who has the courage in front of a crowd of 7,500 people to ask them to bring, yeah, bring me those, those two fish and those five loaves. We'll take care of this. You know, if, if that hadn't have happened, he, he would have looked like a real idiot. I mean, that was a real chance. But he took it. 
you know, for someone who finds their refuge in God. Walking on the water, not even a big deal. There wasn't even anybody there when he started to do it, you know. He's out there alone in the middle of the night. The storm's happening, the, the boat's way out there, the crowd's already been dispersed. He's alone on the beach. I've got to get to the boat. Let's go to the boat. No question. He just starts walking. Steps on the water, gets out there. Of course, the disciples are immediately freaked out. Not many people do this very often. They know that. And Jesus' way of comforting them immediately, take courage. (laughs) Be bold. Stand up. Stop it with this fear thing. It's me. What is there to fear? It's me. Don't be afraid. And Peter says, God, if it's you, let me come to you on the water. Jesus looks up to him. Come. Then Peter gets down out of the boat. <laughs> I mean, I'm amazed by that. You know, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, that he was willing, that he was like, that he wanted to test it. If it's you, then tell me to come. I mean, that says so much about Peter and what he thought. He's like, if it's, if it's God, if it's Jesus, if it's, if it's my, my ideal, I can, I can walk out to him. He can, invite, he can hold me up. He can, he can have me walk on water. What kind of faith is that? How beautiful is that? You know, he says, if it's you, then invite me to come out there and walk on the water. And so indeed, he says, come. Then Peter gets down out of the boat. He walks on the water and comes over to Jesus. So it works. (laughs) We've got two people walking on the water and only one of them is the son of God. The other person is just an average Joe, a fisherman who's now walking on water. But then he saw the wind. He was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. All right, so he gets out there, and then he realizes it's impossible. He sees the wind, he sees the storm, he sees the waves. Reality is looking through the senses, you see. That's our problem. We define this world through our senses, and the senses are themselves limited to only five, a very small hole for the soul to reach through, to view God. But that's how we live in this world. We're constantly squeezing through five tiny little senses. And so we begin to think in tiny little ways. We begin to perceive the world in tiny little restrictions, tight little, you know, nooses around our neck and and shackles on our arms that define what can be done and what can't be done. You know, that we we, we can't do this because, you know, we're just a woman. Or I can't do this because I'm just a man. Or I can't do this because I'm 50. Or I can't do that because I'm too young. Or whatever. Thousands of limitations. And we just pile them on ourselves. One after the other. One after the other. And what's happening is we come to church. Why do we come to church? Why do we come to a temple? Why do we have a practice? Because we see the divine walking on water. Because we see something beautiful. Something amazing. Something that challenges our notion of reality. Something that reminds us inside, something we know very deep, something that we think very deep, that we are that infinite, ever free, ever pure, beautiful self, that there's infinite purity here, that there's infinite love happening here, that there's infinite truth here, and we're reminded that we're not shackled by five, caught in the bucket of the five, these senses that are limitations, these senses that are restrictions that tell us, no, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't but at the same time, never letting us have a moment's peace. Never, never letting us have peace. So he says to him, come out. And Peter comes out, walks on the water, and he begins to sink, begins to sink. And Jesus says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. 
You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? (laughs) All right. Two things there. Actually, there's a bunch of them. One is that when Peter was sinking, what's his first thing to do? He cries out to, to Jesus, help me, help me. So that's, that needs to be our first reaction to, for an objective faith in this world, our first reaction to trouble. Help! <laughs> Ma, make this religion real. And that's your test. You know, that's your test. That's you saying, if you're real, call me out. And then you get out and you go. And if you fall, so you fall, you call out again. And what happens? It says immediately, immediately. Jesus doesn't play with him, doesn't say, ah, ha, ha, you know, <laughs> tease him a little bit or try to teach him a lesson or berate him. Immediately, Jesus puts out his hand to him and pulls him up, you know. And what? Says you of little faith. <laughs> Are you getting that? Peter stepped out of a boat in a storm and walked on water over to Jesus And so he had a little bit of a lapse. He started to sink because he got afraid. In Jesus's world, that's a man of little faith. In Jesus's world, that's a man of little faith. Someone who gets out of a boat and walks on water for a short distance before sinking is a man of little faith. That means Jesus's understanding of what the potential possibilities are are through the roof. He lives in a dimension of, of fearlessness of strength, of wonder, of possibility that we can't even imagine. He sees with eyes that have a fire and a burning that we just can't even imagine, a knowledge of God that we have not even begun to approach yet. Get out of the boat. Get out of your boat, this boat of the five senses, this boat of limitations, this boat of restrictions. Test your faith. See how far it goes. Catch a glimpse of the world that these sages live in, these worlds of the impossible, these worlds of infinite strength, these worlds of infinite inspiration, infinite love. You of little faith, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? Faith causes us to grow from our failure. That's the second sign of objective faith. Not that we just take refuge in it, but that it actually becomes our reason for growth. Peter takes that chance. He goes a short way. He fails. He falls back into the water. Jesus says, you man of little faith, why did you doubt? And Peter learns. Peter grows. Peter understands that it was his lack of faith that was the reason. Not the lack of strength in God, but his lack of faith. He didn't let go. He didn't let go. And when they had climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. That's the joy afterwards, after a great thing has happened, a great thing has been accomplished. Faith has been tested and proved true. Worship is the natural response. Actually, worship is the natural response of, of just recognizing God in any form, you know. I used to wonder as a kid, what is worship? What is worship? Because we used to call church, at church, the church I used to go to, we had called it worship services. But I was like, well, I'm going and listening to a lecture, <laughs> putting some money in the tray, and then leaving. What's the worship? And then when I got around Vedanta, I saw a bunch of the ritual stuff happening. And I thought, well, is that, is that what this worship is? Well, worship is something that happens. It's not something you do. 
It's something that happens. It happens when you're in the presence of God. It happens when you recognize for just a moment that divinity in any way, whether it's with someone that you really love and you feel that wonderful, deep feeling of love, of compassion. There's a moment of worship there, a moment of aha, aha, beautiful. When you first see your mom after a long time, you know, there's worship there. I remember a nice sentimental story I'll drag out. When I went to college for the first time, when I was a freshman in college, my first time away from my family, never been away from my family before. And I went off to college. It was a 10-hour drive from our house, so it's not like I visited. And uh, there I was, and uh, they had a weekend there where a uh, high school weekend where high school kids can come and stay in the dorms and see what the college is like. It's kind of an outreach thing. And that weekend, my parents decided to surprise me with a visit. They brought the youth group up to see it. And my mom came in. I remember coming in from class, and I came in down the end of the hall. And the other end of the hall was the door to the parking lot. And I'm coming in the door, door normal day, kind of tired, got my book bag, walking down the hall. And I look up, and <laughs> I see my mom walk in the door at the far end of the hall. There was no, no thought you know, immediately the book bag is on the ground, and I just, I ran at full, full flight all the way down the hall and uh, gave my mother the best embrace of my life, actually. It's one that I still remember today, that feeling of having not seen my mom for a couple of months for the first time, throwing my arms around her and feeling her hair on my face and, you know, the smell of her makeup. <laughs> my mom was there, and I was hugging her. That whole run from the moment I saw her to the moment I hugged her, that is worship. That's the only natural response when you're in the presence of love, when you're in the presence of the divine. And when you go to the shrine, that's the highest ideal, to have that, that inclination inside. To do, to take, it takes some discipline to stay seated, you know, to, to not, like Takor used to, <laughs> when he used to worship mother in the temple, Kali used to climb up and to sit in her arms and do all kinds of fun and crazy things, you know, just such a love for God, such a love for the divine. That's worship. You want to know what worship is? Open your heart to loving God. Open your heart to loving God in all things, everything around you. Catch a moment's recognition of that and feel that worship happen. Feel that worship happen, being in the presence of the divine. We're going to now come over to the other side. Well, it's actually not on the other side of the world, just a couple of countries over to Ramakrishna, and he's sitting in his room. He's saying, bound souls never think of God. If they get any leisure, they indulge in idle gossip and foolish talk, or they engage in fruitless work. If you ask one of them for the reason, he answers, oh, I can't keep still. I've got to get out. I've got to get out and make this hedge. When times hangs heavy on their hands, they perhaps start playing cards. <laughs> so we've come a long way. We've come along from the disciples in the boat, you know, worshiping Jesus for having walked on water. We're flipping around, catching another story here. Takor, the same, the same son of God, sitting once again in the presence of his disciples and telling them about worldly people, the worldly mind, how it binds us down. You know, it just keeps us busy in fruitless things, just doing things that don't matter, talking about things that don't matter. And he's saying this to the disciples, you know, and there's a great silence in the room, it says. Why? Because they all know that they went out and 
played solitaire on their computers for two hours last night, <laughs> you know, because they knew that they booted up that, you know, the, and went to just kind of wheedled through YouTube videos for 90 minutes and wasted all their time. So there's great silence. They're sitting there. Wow. You know, okay. I see it. And then one of the devotees has the courage to speak up. He says, sir, is there no help then for such a worldly person? You know, is there, <laughs> is there no hope? Because we all know it's like, yeah. Not only do I do that, but I like doing that. You know, I like, I like sitting and chatting about nothing. I, I like booting up, you know, solitaire and playing a few games of free sound. But, Jesus, but God says, certainly there is. From time to time, this worldly person should live in the company of holy men, and from time to time to go into solitude, to meditate on God. So that's your, that's your way out. You know, come to the temple, spend some time in the shrine, meet some of your brothers and sisters here, and, you know, talk about spiritual things spiritual ideals from time to time come away spend a weekend in the in the guest house being quiet reading that that spiritual book you've never gotten around to or reading the second chapter the first chapter that you read last year <laughs> like that come and spend some time you know thinking of god being around the divine come and go into solitude meditate on god furthermore he should practice discrimination and pray to God. Give me faith and devotion. Once a person has faith, he has achieved everything. There is nothing greater than faith. When I read that, I thought, now my, now my first three things at the beginning of the lecture has to now come to four. We have to, <laughs> we have to add faith to that. Jesus says, going back to Matthew, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, if you have faith even as small as a mustard seed, tiny little bit of faith, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. <laughs> That's a big one. That's a hard one to swallow. It's like you don't even know what to do with that one. You're like, if I have, if, if I have smith, faith even as small as, as a mustard seed, if I have even the tiniest amount of faith, you know, that's why Peter getting out of the boat and actually walking on water, oh, you have little faith. Why? Because in Jesus' world, he says, if you have faith, if you, if you believe these things, if you trust these things, if you actually take the truth as being true, he says, I tell you the truth. So we've got, in this case, someone revered as the Son of God saying, I'm telling you a truth. Pay attention. If you have faith even that small, you can say to this mountain, move over there. Move over there. He says, I tell you, it will move. It will move. Now, if that's the kind of world that we live in, why are we stuck in this mundane? Why are we stuck here? Why is nobody moving mountains? Why are, why are we not taking that chance? When, 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 he, when, 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 our, when our heart moves us to do the impossible, why do we have lists of reasons that we can't do it? Why, when we're trying to change a character flaw in ourselves and we're confronted for the first time after we've made the decision with that battle, why? Why do we settle again? Why do we let go? 
to fall into these limitations again, to fall into these restrictions of the senses, to be defined by the five, to be defined by this aging, melting body, <laughs> as it were, to watch it grow weaker, watch it grow older, watch it grow less capable, and inside know that we're infinite, know that we're free, and laugh, laugh at the suggestion of limitation, laugh at the notion of failure, laugh at the notion of not achieving your realization. Laugh because you live in the world of the divine where nothing is impossible, where the love of God always comes down immediately, laughing and says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And stands you back up again on the water and gets you back in the boat. Have that kind of faith. Ramakrishna talking to Ketter, he says, you must have heard about the tremendous power of faith. It's said in the Purana that Rama, who was God himself, the embodiment of absolute Brahman, had to build a bridge to cross the sea to Ceylon. But Hanuman, trusting in Rama's name, cleared the sea in one jump and reached the other side. There's a lovely thought. You know, he's making a comparison. He's saying God himself, as Rama, had to build a bridge. But the man who had faith just jumped. Didn't have to do it, just jumped, just went. You know, the implications of that are huge. The implications of that are huge, you know. That you've got that right, you've got that ability. If you dare to test your faith, you dare to believe and just run out and to tackle any one of the world's problems, let alone one of your own, to have that kind of idea. So in one leap, trusting in Rama's name, he cleared the sea and reached the other side. He had no need of a bridge. Everyone laughed. Once a man was about to cross the sea, and Bibishana, I don't know how to repeat, say that name, Bibishana, wrote Rama's name on a leaf. He tied it in the corner of the man's wearing cloth, and he said to him, now don't be afraid, have faith, and walk on the water. But look here, the moment you lose faith, you will be drowned. The man was walking easily on the water. Suddenly he had an intense desire to see what was tied in his cloth. He opened it and found only a leaf with the name of Rama written on it. What is this, he thought, just the name of Rama? As soon as the doubt entered his mind, he sank under the water. So we've got the same thing going on here. We've got this idea, this man has, has been told, you can walk on water, I'm just going to tie this thing in the corner of your, of your dhoti, and uh, you'll, be able to, you'll be able to cross the sea, you'll be able to walk on water. So the guy is doing it. He's walking along, walking on water, with this thing tied in his dhoti, and then he wants to know, well, what is this thing? Right? What is this thing? Why? What's, what's going on there? He's going out through the senses again. He's going, he's going to let the, defense, the senses define his world. He goes down, what is this thing tied in my dhoti? He takes out, because he thinks the power is in the thing that's tied in his dhoti. No idea that the power is within himself, that the power of faith lies in the heart, that it's because of what he is, because of his nature that he can believe, that he can walk on water. Because he is that infinity, because he is the dreamer of this dream. He is the commander of this reality. He understands that. That is where the secret lies within. But what does he think? He thinks it's out here. He thinks it's tied in the, in the corner of his dhoti. So he undoes it. He sees a leaf with Rama's name written on it. And what is the first thing that the senses do? They limit and restrict you. That's the first thing they do. What, only a leaf? Only God's name? 
Only this, this small thing? And immediately, the notion of his infinite self is lost. Immediately, that understanding that I am that infinite being, that I'm the dreamer dreamed, you know, immediately forgotten, immediately falls through his fingers, and he sinks. He falls down. Now, in his case, sadly enough, Jesus wasn't standing there to pull him back up. So I guess he didn't have good luck with that one. <laughs> but this idea, you know, be that which the scriptures tell you that you are. Be that which the scriptures say is your final realization. That you are love incarnate. That you are infinite in the storehouse of that love. That you are infinite in the storehouse of that power of being. That this world, this world is nothing to you. It has no power over you but what you give it. And the, 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 the limitations that your senses are constantly reminding you of. The, the, the sense of hunger that they put in your soul constantly because, because of those limitations. That that is the unreal thing. That that is the thing that, that is not true. But you define your faith by it. And you become small by it. And you become crippled by it. You become unable by it. You become disabled by it. Don't see the world that way. Go and spend your time in solitude with the infinite and be reminded of your infinity. Be reminded that these limitations are imaginary. Be reminded that infinite strength lies in you. Have that objective faith. If a man has faith in God, then even if he has committed the most heinous sins, he will certainly be saved through his faith. Let him only say to God, O Lord, I will not repeat such an action, and he need not be afraid of anything. Do you see how every time faith is mentioned by the sages, fearlessness is attached to it. Fearlessness is attached to it. So a life of, of, a life of, of, of faith is a life of fearlessness. It's, it, it's not being small. It's not being unable. It's a life of possibility. Confronted with any problem, you don't see the reasons that the problem's too big or unbeatable. You immediately see one of a dozen ways to get through it, to get over it, to grow from it, to create and mint gold from it. It reminds me of that conversation that I share quite often about Swami Prabhudhananda. He said, your karma has very little to do with what happens to you. What happens to you just happens. The world is just happening. Everything's just happening. You assign value to it. If you have good karma, you can take a bad situation and mint gold from it. If you had bad karma, you'll take that same instance and become defeated by it. So what is it that overrides karma? It's faith. What is it that turns that sword thrust to a pinprick? It's faith. It's knowing that, that, that God will put out that hand immediately to keep you from sinking. It's, having, it's living in a way that's not afraid to get out of the boat and take a chance. It's living in a way that you see reasons that things can happen and not the reasons that they can't. It's what makes you willing to serve without being afraid of getting caught up in a situation bigger than just giving someone a sandwich or a dollar. Faith will change our life. 
Faith will change a life of, of, of limitation and restriction and mediocrity into gold, into a life worth living, a life of fearlessness, a life of taking chances really for the fun of watching God do his wonder. Look at those people, the few people in the world that have done that. You know, go through and read the lives of these saints. You know, as much as I love science, as much as I'm in favor of, of, all, of all of the things we're learning from it, you take the life of a saint, they're remembered for forever because of their service. When science provides the answers that I need, I'll see scientists who are doing that, who are living for, for others and giving their life for others. That's where faith is different. That's where faith is bold. That's where faith is necessary. When the master had said this, he sings a song. If only I can pass away, repeating Durga's name. How can you then, O blessed one, withhold me from me deliverance, wretched though I may be? I may have stolen a drink of wine, or killed a child unborn, or slain a woman or a cow, or even caused a Brahmin's death. But though it all be true, nothing of this can make me feel the least uneasiness. For through the power of your sweet name, my wretched soul may still aspire even to godhood. That's faith. It's not to sit and, and bemoan all of your karma and all of the reasons that you can't rise up. It's not to think of all the horrible things that you've done that restricted you, that have made you small, that have ruined your life or ruined other people's lives. It's not sitting and thinking about those things and being limited and defined by them. It's tossing them away and say, yeah, it's true. All that's true, but it's done. Of course, says, he says, when that happens, just say, Lord, I'm not going to repeat it again. I'm not going to do it again. I'm done. And get up and go forward. Get up and go forward. Don't you dare let your failures define you. Don't you dare let your shortcomings define what you can and cannot do. Move into a life of faith, of objective faith. Know that it's true that these things that the sages say are before you. Vimalananda, disciple of Vivekananda, he defines faith in this way, and I've read this before, but it's quite beautiful and very important. Faith does not mean a sudden effervescence of sentimentalism or a dazzling display of intellectual feats. Okay, so it's not, it's not pie-in-the-sky thinking. You know, it's, it's not the, the thing that makes faith quite unattractive, I think, or, or makes faith something that, <laughs> that has such a bad reputation is because faith has nothing to do with what you say. Faith has what to, to do with what you are. Faith of, of saying things, you know, easily said, but if you don't put the life behind it, if you don't have that truth behind it, if you aren't taking the risks behind it, then it's sentimentalism. It's meaningless. It's childish stuff. And that's the misunderstanding of faith. Faith isn't what you say. It's how you live. It's your attitude toward life, being unbeatable, being unbreakable, being undefeatable, being fearless, being able, seeing possibility, always trying, always trying again, never losing your spirit, never, never, ever letting go and, and thinking for a moment that it can't be done. 
It's doing, it's loving, it's caring, it's being, it's reaching out, it's getting up and dusting off again and again and again, being willing to be the fool who's an idiot enough to try one more time to do the impossible. You get out of the boat, you go straight into the water. Well, I failed again. You get back in the boat, like, okay. Get out of the boat, <laughs> you fall in the water. Apparently I've been doing that for a million lifetimes now. But you just keep up and you just keep trying and you just keep going forward because you're living a life of fearlessness. You're living a life of stubborn belief. I can and I will. My realization is my birthright. To know God, to talk to God, to dance with the divine is my birthright. And I'm not going to give it up. I'm not going to give it up until it's achieved, until it's done. That's objective faith. So faith is not an effervescent sentimentality or a dazzling display of intellectual feet. Faith has no concern with these passing shadows, no concern with these, with these passing shadows, with the things of the senses, the things that come and go, that don't even last a day, some of them, has no concern with those things. They vanish away before the tremendous fact of life. It stands unmoved. Faith is not moved. It's not defined by your by your senses and by your ideas and by the things that pass through your mind. Faith is an absolute. It's a knowing. The sages have discovered this. They have said that this is the nature of this world, and it's living with that assumption behind your life. So that somebody looks at you and says, God, what do you think? You're going to live forever? Like, oh, yeah, I guess I do. <laughs> you live your life like you're going to live forever. Well, I think I probably have lived forever. You know, that's that life. That's faith. Faith has no concern with these passing shadows, the things that come and go, that vanish away before the tremendous fact of being. It stands unmoved in the innermost depth of your heart as the one vital principle of all thought and all action in the midst of the varying destinies of earthly existence. It is that one thing in you that's not movable. It is that one thing in you that doesn't depend on the outside world, doesn't depend on your senses. It is a definition of you. It is the very the fundamental of you. It's that isness. It's not something that quivers and changes, that's big and then small, that's reliable and then not reliable, that works and then doesn't work. It's the one undeniable fact of your being, of your walking and living and feeling your heartbeat and your breathing the innermost depth of your heart, the one vital principle of all thought and all action in the midst of these, des these varying destinies of earthly existence. It is that intuitive perception of an eternal relation with something which, by its overwhelming prominence, throws into shade the ever-vanishing shadows of the world, draws us away from its diversified occupations to a close touch with that permanent reality. That's that faith. It's that thing in you that does not change, that is not moving, that can always be found and can always be touched, that happens when the mind is quiet and doesn't listen to anything else. It's that inner inspiration that arises, that inner inspiration of, of, of love, that amazement at life when everything else is quiet, when everything else is set aside. It is that being. It's that intuitive perception, that thing that you know is true, that thing that you know is true, the reason you can't imagine your death, because you've never died, you've never been born. How can that which is immortal imagine its own death? That's why, try as you might, you can't. 
Yeah, I remember in, uh, in uh, uh, Bellermont, I watched a sadhu's body burn on the funeral pyre. And I sat there and just, for an hour and a half, just sat there watching as closely as I could that body be consumed in fire and trying to put mine there the whole time, trying to think those are my toes, you know, that's my hair, that's my arm. Try as I might, even with that imminent example, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't really imagine it. I couldn't actually come to an idea that that, that, was, that that was me, that would be me, because it's not me. I won't be there when this body burns, or maybe I will. Maybe I'll be watching it through the thousands of eyes watching it, or, or the one pair of eyes watching, I don't know. Anyway, this notion. <laughs> it's an intuitive perception of an, of an eternal relation, something which, by its overwhelming prominence, you see, when, when, when Vivekananda asked Ramakrishna, do you see God? Ramakrishna's response, yes, I see him now. I see him now even more clearly than I see you. It's the thing that, it's that overwhelming well-being prominence that Jesus lived in, so that he sees a man get out of a boat and walk a short distance and begin to sink, and he sees in his world, oh, you have little faith. Because there's an overwhelming prominence that he is in touch with, that he knew, that he didn't define himself by a body. He defined himself by a soul, an infinite source of being, an infinite source of love, an overwhelming prominence of reality. That is faith. Faith is this constant exertion of that reality over this apparent reality. These things which seem to be true in the senses, but are utterly impossible to touch or find or define when you think about them. It's living in the soul and not living in the senses. We want shraddha, Vivekananda says. We want faith in our own selves. Strength is life. Weakness is death. We are the Atman, deathless and free, pure, pure by nature. Can we ever commit a sin? Impossible. Such a faith is needed. Such a faith makes men of us, makes gods of us. It is by losing this idea of Shraddha that the world has gone to ruin. The history of the world is the history of a few men who had faith in themselves. That faith calls out that divinity within. That's faith. That's faith to constantly exert that inner divinity, that inner reality, to constantly draw from that well of infinite love that's in you, and to give it liberally and freely always, because you know there is no end to it. You have an infinite supply. You can do anything. You fail only when you do not strive sufficiently to manifest your infinite power. As soon as a man or a nation loses faith, death comes. There is a divine within that cannot be overcome by church dogmas or by blackguardism. A handful of Greeks speak whenever there is civilization. Some mistakes there must always be. But do not grieve. Have great insight. Do not think what is done is done. Oh, that were it done better. If a man had not been God, humanity by this time would have become insane with its litanies and its penitence. None will be left, none destroyed. All will in the end be made perfect. Say day and night, come up, my brothers. You are the infinite ocean of purity. Be God. Manifest God. Manifest your inner divinity. That's the call of Vivekananda. And that is what our inner faith 
what, what objective faith leads to, the life that it shows us. I'm sitting on a mountain, Hafiz says. I'm casting shadows into the sky. I did not invite it, but the sun has come and is now playing tag with my feet. I am whispering to the clouds today, watch out for my shoulders, for I wish no harm to all my soft friends. Where do you think you will be when God reveals himself inside of you? I was so glad to hear that every pillow in this world will become stuffed with my soul and my beard. I am sitting on a mountain range. I am a precious body of living water offered to the earth from the light's own hands. Why ever talk of miracles when you are destined to become infinite love? Still, the final grace was left for all of existence and Hafiz to blend and to find that I am every pillow offering comfort to each and every mind, to each and every foot. That's the life of faith. Be that. Take a moment, a short moment. <laughs> to reflect on these things. <laughs> 